Good morning. It's good to be here with you guys. Uh, I have the privilege, as he said, of pastoring Refuge Church, which is in southwest Detroit, about three miles west of downtown. I like to tell people, if you've been to a Tigers game and eaten Mexican food after, you've probably been really close to my house. So, uh, man, glad to get into the word today. We're going to continue and actually wrap up your series on the Apostles' Creed today. So if you would, stand with me, and we'll read the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. So today we will discuss that final line. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And this is an essential Christian belief, but it's something so often that we are unaware of or we forget about, we don't think about, we know so little about, and yet it deeply affects every aspect of our lives, even as we know they constantly move towards death. There's a Drake song. I'm going to assume some of you know it and some of you, you know, there might be more people in my neighborhood that know it, but a Drake song. It says, look, we started from the bottom, now we're here. We started from the bottom, now we're here. No, you're good. Talk back, talk back. We started from the bottom, now we're here. So my question, though, for you today is where is here? We started from the bottom, now we've arrived. In other words, right, how do you know you've made it? What is the good life? What's the top? How do you know you've arrived? I had a conversation with a young guy this week, and he was freaking out at work, left on his lunch break, clocked out. I'm not even going back. And he called me as he's dealing with anxiety about issues at work, but his stress wasn't merely the drama at work. Right? The reality was that it was hard to deal with the problems of the day because he had no hope, because he felt stuck. He talked through his past decisions. He talked through decisions he was dissatisfied with and decisions that he just knew were flat wrong. He talked about how he regretted getting in this expensive car payment because really he, he just needed something that would hold him down and make him pay a bill so that he wouldn't run away like he usually does. And now this thing's eating him alive. And now he finds himself in a dead-end job, what he considers a dead-end job. He's almost 30. And he's frustrated because he realizes he doesn't measure up to the image of what a man is in his eyes. So he looks for hope. He's looking for hope and saving up enough money that he can escape his current circumstance. He's looking for hope and finding real significance, a, a, a real career, a family. And ultimately, he's struggling to follow Christ because he turns to sin in search of hope and rest, which only adds fuel to the fire of condemnation and weight. 
So you and I might be in a different place in life than this young guy. And you may also be in a different spiritual place than this young guy, but you and I are the same. We're trying to rise from the bottom until we reach whatever it is that we think it means to arrive, wherever here is. And when we don't make it, or when we do make it and we're still unsatisfied, we become anxious. We become angry. We scratch and we claw. We find vices to help ourselves forget. So whether you feel like you came in today and you feel like, man, I'm good, I made it. Or you feel like I'm at the bottom. Or you're somewhere in the middle. We all have this sneaking suspicion, maybe even a settled conviction for you, that I was meant for more. I was made for more. We long for heaven on earth. We long for heaven on earth. So we chase significance. We chase pleasure. We chase peace. We chase immortality. Comedian Woody Allen, he said this. He said, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality through not dying. He's a clever one. He also said, I don't want to live on in the hearts of my countrymen. I want to live on in my apartment. Right? These things are funny. But there's something about a guy like that that knows how to make something funny out of something that's real, right? It draws out a couple of realities. First of all, our proclivity to not want to die, our desire for immortality, but also this sense that we look for immortality in other things. Even when we know we're going to die, we want heaven on earth. We want achievements that will outlast our lives. So this guy, King Solomon, you might have heard of him, wisest potentially the wisest man that ever lived with the help of God wrote under inspiration of the Holy Spirit the book of Ecclesiastes in your Bible right and it's this this piece on how he went on the the ultimate search for pleasure for peace for joy for significance and he had more money more power more intellect than probably anybody we've ever met in order to pull this off And yet he came up empty. So then in chapter 3, he's already begun to show how these pursuits are empty and meaningless. And he says in chapter 3, verse 9 and following, What does the worker gain from his struggles? I have seen the task that God has given the children of Adam to keep them occupied, right? The clock just ticking away. What, What am I doing? It's the same thing day in, day out. He has made everything in its appropriate time. He has also put eternity in their hearts. But no one can discover the work God has done from the beginning to the end. So to put simply what Solomon is getting at here, God made the world in a way that nothing quite lasts or pays off or satisfies the longing for eternity, the longing for God himself that he placed inside of us. It's designed, right? It's almost like the world is short-circuited to fall short so that it points us to what will really satisfy our longings, which were placed by God himself inside of us. We have this real longing for eternity, longing for heaven, the place where God dwells, right? For God himself. C.S. Lewis, the Christian writer and philosopher, put it this way. He said, now if 
if we're made for heaven, the desire for our proper place will be already in us, but not yet attached to the true object and will even appear as the rival of the object. So in other words, the longing that we have is God-given, but it's pointed at other things. The desire we have is from God, but we, we project that onto something else. For example, we're made to bask in the glory of God. Instead, we seek the glory of our children obeying us perfectly, and we rage when they don't. We were made to live in the perfect place that Jesus went to prepare for us, in a perfect home, in the perfect city, in the perfect world. But we're anxious, overworking while neglecting perhaps our family, our church, our calling so that we can pay for a house that we don't need and a place that has started from the bottom, but now we're here written all over it. And it's shocking, right, to see that everything from our prescriptions to our politics, our video games, to how many kids we want and what kind of weird hipster name we want to name them. (laughs) All of these things could betray what we believe what we need to learn to believe about the resurrection of the body and the life eternal. As Douglas Wilson likes to say, theology comes out of your fingertips. Theology comes out of your fingertips. In other words, show me your life and I'll tell you what you believe. Don't tell me what you believe. Just let me look at you. Let me look at your life and I'll tell you what you really believe. We might profess we believe one thing. But when we What we truly believe comes out, right? When we find success or failure. It comes out in how we love our spouse or our boss. It comes out, shoot, even when I step on a Lego in the living room in the dark. Right? We long for heaven. We long for this perfection and eternity. We long for heaven on earth because God put this longing in our hearts. But like the exchange of worship in Romans chapter 1, we trade the creator for the creation. We try to achieve and experience this heaven on earth through other things because our vision of the resurrection and life eternal is too low. Our vision of the resurrection and eternal life is too low. So we might fear death. You may long to hang on to the things of this life. We may want to make the most of this brief life that we have by chasing one thing or another, fulfilling ourselves in career or family or reputation or whatever your favorite vice is. Or you you might even just be bored or, or, or not even think about like the life to come. But that's precisely because we don't know Or we've forgotten what has been purchased and promised for all who are in Christ Jesus. So I had this dear, sweet, older lady. She's been married to her husband for 40 or 50 years. She'd come to me with with great angst in her voice and eyes and basically ask if her and her husband, I was like, are we still going to be married in the resurrection? In eternity, are we still going to know each other? Are we going to be married because somebody had recently discussed with her where Jesus talks about we, we won't be married or given marriage in the resurrection. And so she was 
nervous about this. What I told her in brief was, that may sound sad to us, but nothing, right, nothing in the resurrection will be sad or lesser. Whatever that relationship may be like and whatever the joy of heaven may be like, it will not be a downgrade from her 50 years of joy with this man. It will be incomparably better, as will all things in the new creation. And we see this across the pages of Scripture in so many places where we see that we're going to be right, in a perfectly renewed world where people in real physical bodies, freed from sin and death and all the brokenness that comes with that, are able now to live fully to the glory of God, to do things in the world for the glory of God, in the city of God, which exists in the physical realm. So the better country that Abraham is said to be waiting for or to have waited for and that you and I wait for it's not going to be a land in the clouds where we're little naked babies with, tar- with, with harps floating around, right? And it's not an eternally boring worship service with hardback pews. <laughs> Listen to what Revelation 21 says. There's many other places in the Old Testament I knew that you can begin to get a picture of what's going on here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling place, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people's. And God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. So where the world started in creation with God in, right, God's people in God's place under God's rule in the garden, it ends in the city of God where God dwells among men in the world that God has created good, which is now renewed. In 1 Corinthians 15, whole chapter addresses much about the resurrection. He's addressing the resurrection of the body and eternal life in depth. And the Apostle Paul tells us our, our bodies are going to be like a seed you bury in the ground. It dies and then it grows up into this giant tree. It's still the same plant, but it's far greater. In verse 43, he says it is sown in dishonor, right? It's planted like I got a bum ankle. Some of us got balding heads. You got things that are maybe minor that bother you. You got a few extra hairs growing out of your ear. And then you've got things that are life reorienting. You know your body's a body that's going to rot in the ground in dishonor. But it's a sown in dishonor. Raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body, right? Made alive by the life-giving spirit, which is Christ. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. It's an actual body. He's not saying, like, you become a spirit. 
but a perfected body, a body like the body of Christ, right? It's contingent on Jesus' resurrection. He's been raised from the dead. And Paul argues that we will be like him if we belong to him. Verse 50, he says, what am I saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood can't inherit, right? That body without the spirit of God can't inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Verse 53, for this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, right? It's going to put on more, better. And this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. So what are we saying here? The scriptures promise a better, elevated, perfected creation where God lives among us. Where Jesus is king in a human body. You know, he's still human today. He didn't stop being human when he rose from the dead and ascended to the Father's right hand. And we will have the perfect human body like his. You will be you. You will have a body. You may likely do many of the things that you enjoy doing today, but you will do it all perfectly to the glory of God. Right? I'll no longer have the bum ankle. We'll all have a full head of hair unless I guess God decides some of us are more glorious without it. <laughs> and you won't be fighting sin anymore. Your new body will be free from all of its trappings. We long for heaven on earth. We try to achieve and experience this in other things because our vision of the resurrection and eternal life is too low, too small. We don't think it's greater or better or even real. But because we do have these great and precious promises, because we will live forever, we can rise up and we can turn down. I want to tell you what I mean by that. We can rise up. Because I will live forever, I can die daily. I mean, that because of the resurrection of Jesus, which guarantees my future resurrection and yours if you're in Christ, we can live for a higher purpose and higher pleasures. A higher purpose. We can live differently in the present. We can keep score differently, prioritize differently, take risks and take loss with purpose, with eternity in mind. Because I'll live forever, I can die daily. I can live for a higher purpose today. So the Apostle Paul, still in 1 Corinthians 15 here, he's going through the implications of the resurrection and asking, yo, if if the dead aren't raised, then why? In verse 30, he asks, why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day. As surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do me? He says, we're in danger every hour. I face death every day. He lived with a price on his head. He slept with one eye open. He went from chasing those who called on the name of Christ from city to city to being chased out of city after city for the name of Christ. And in verse 32, he said, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do to me? So apparently he either faced the, the real threat, the real fight in the arena like happened with many Roman prisoners, 
of fighting wild beasts in the arena for the entertainment of others, or like some of the philosophers would do, he uses that imagery to paint just how fierce the opposition was when he was in the city of Ephesus. And in 2 Corinthians 11, he, he fleshes out even a little more of some of the things that he went through for the sake of the gospel. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. Five times I received 40 lashes, whippings, minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers, toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, without food, cold and without clothing. His concern for the glory of God, his concern for the churches of God, his concern for individual believers and for the lost Jews and Gentiles to come to faith in Christ was so fierce he repeatedly ran into danger to proclaim that God's Savior was crucified, buried, and raised on the third day for the forgiveness of sins. So he says, man, if I did that just for kicks, that was really, really dumb. He says, if we're not going to be raised from the dead, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, so I'm not going to be raised from the dead, then what am I doing with my life? Why, why am I even doing all of this? It's senseless suffering and risk. But on the other hand, we see the opposite is also true. In terms of risk and reward, because the resurrection of Jesus guarantees our bodily resurrection and eternal life, because the risk of death is gone, right? The penalty of death is gone. It's all reward. It's all reward. There's no risk or sacrifice too big. There's no need to play, play prevent defense if you're a football guy. There's no need to play conservatively. Paul had every reason to push all of his chips into the middle of the table. And you and I have every reason to live and to die to the glory of God with no regard for this life because our life is hidden with Christ and he will raise us up on the last day. This should transform our ambitions, our bank accounts, our families, our jobs, our calendars. There's nothing more dangerous than a man or woman with nothing to lose. Saints, if you are in Christ, that's you. You have nothing to lose. You have nothing to lose, and your loss, which God's word does not pretend, is not costly. Your loss is never meaningless. So on the one hand, you can live radical lives to the glory of God. On the other hand, your pain, your suffering, your heartache, Everything that you give up or everything that is taken from you, all of that is going somewhere entirely worthwhile. So the call to live in light of the resurrection, to live in light of our bodily resurrection and eternal life is this call to rise up, to live for a higher purpose. So sometimes that call to rise up then 
is to literally do what Paul did, right? To face death for the sake of the gospel. Uh, for somebody in mind, mean choosing to stay single and move halfway across the world to translate the Bible to an unreached people group. But for others, it might be to be the best lawyer, the best teacher, the best policeman, and allow God's word to shape your work. Sometimes to rise up is to sacrifice my ambitions for the great ambition of being a stay-at-home mom. Sometimes to rise up is to work a seemingly insignificant, dead-end job faithfully for 50 years and come home, love my wife, love my kids, love my neighbors, love my church so well that people in each of those venues see the glory of God, see the love of God, see an ordinary man captivated by the love of God. Dealing with the everyday anxieties of life in peace with an eye to the future. Displaying God's love and God's faithfulness rather than taking the next opportunity every time for the next big pay raise or avoid work. The next opportunity for an exciting love affair with a young new woman or a young new computer. Seeking the opportunity to spend all my time and my hobby instead of washing dishes, taking kids to school, letting your wife have the time to take a shower, playing a game that you're not interested in, right? The ordinary things. You see how it's upside down? Because we will rise, because we have this great future, to rise up and to live in light of eternity might be what this world calls waste. We're here now might be what the world calls the bottom. We appear to be missing out, but we're actually strategically setting aside something lesser temporarily in light of something far better that we're already guaranteed in Christ. We long for heaven on earth. We chase that through other things because our vision of the resurrection and eternal life is far too low. But because we have these great and precious promises, we can rise up. We can live for higher purpose, but we can also turn down. We can live for higher pleasures. He continues on in verse 32. If the dead aren't raised, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Live it up. YOLO, you live once. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning. For some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. So Paul has said, why am I suffering like this? Why am I suffering for the gospel if the dead aren't raised? But now he says, if the dead aren't raised... Why wouldn't we do just whatever makes us numb or happy in the moment? Without the resurrection, Paul says, turn down for what? Right, why? We, we might as well turn up. We might as well party. We might as well pursue vice and whatever I want the most right now. Never say no to myself if there's no resurrection. And it seems clear that some people in the church at Corinth they're 
confusion about the doctrine of the resurrection is actually bearing this fruit in their lives. He says, you need to turn down. You need to chill out. Your bad doctrine is producing wicked, godless lives. He says, if you, if you get the resurrection of the body right, if you see how much better it is, what we've been given in Christ, you'll get your life right. He says, right, the, the way some of you are living shows your ignorance about God and the gospel. If you truly understand the precious reality that Christ died for your sins, guaranteed your future, you would live differently in the present, present by the power of Christ in you. So recognize the glory of what you have in Christ or can have in Christ and what you will have in Christ. And if you do so, you can defer the ultimate pleasure to the future. We can turn down the temporary pleasures of sin like Moses, who Hebrews 11 tells us, chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. And how many thousand years now later are we? People are still hunting the treasure in Egypt. Moses said, it's, it's too cheap. It's not enough. Since he was looking ahead to the reward. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the Messiah himself, who Hebrews 12, 2 tells us, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When there is no hope, then why would we do anything? Then live for whatever gives us the most buzz or hope or pleasure in the moment, whatever is most beneficial to ourselves. This is the very thing that plagued the young man I told you about. It's the very thing that plagues you and me. When we live as if the resurrection, as if eternal life either isn't a reality or isn't a good reality, we seek something better. We seek another hope. And when our alternate hopes disappoint, well, we're anxious, we're fearful, we're angry, we're selfish, we're lazy, we lust, we fight, we scroll and scroll and scroll. We paint a fake picture of ourselves for the world around us to see. We pursue comforts and distractions and achievements to numb us. We hide from the gift of people who can help us confess and kill sin. So we turn up now because we forget there's something far better that we're looking forward to in hope. But with the resurrection... There is reason to live holy lives. And there is reason for the painful willingness to put sin to death in myself. So as you meditate on the future, the glory of what is guaranteed to be yours if you're in Christ, ask yourself, first of all, have I turned to Christ? Am I in Christ? Man, what sin is, is so much lesser than what you're to receive? What, what do you need to turn from? What ambition needs to be adjusted or removed? Or maybe what new ambition do you need to take up? And Lord willing, what hopelessness has been stripped of its power in your heart and mind today? 
We're not just biding our time, right, till death, trying to make the most of it till the inevitable, inevitable happens. We can rise. We can live with purpose, live for a higher purpose. We can turn down and kill sin. So rise up, turn down, and one last word, endure, endure. The Christian life is hard. Pursuing Christ is hard. Living for the glory of God, living in holiness, all these things we've talked about is hard. Now continue doing that for a lifetime. It's even harder. Why would anybody want to do that unless there's a true reward at the end, unless our reward is what God has already given us in Christ? Now he closes out the chapter with this encouragement in light of the promise of the resurrection of the body. Because we know Christ has been raised and we will be raised with him. Because we know that he has paid the penalty of sin, which is death, and bringing about, is bringing about the death of death, he says in verse 58, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work. Why? Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's not a waste. And if this comfort is to be yours, this joy is to be yours, if your labor is not to be in vain, if your life is not to be a waste but have true meaning, if you're to enjoy this eternal life with God, it's only if you are in the Lord. You notice he said, your labor in the Lord. You can sacrifice for a lifetime. You can be a moral person. You can do many good works. But despite it all, when Jesus comes again to judge the living and the dead, the question won't be, did you labor enough? The question will be, are you in the Lord? Are you in Christ? Have you believed the gospel message that Christ died on the cross for our sins, was buried, and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures? If that's not you, the scriptures teach there is still a resurrection for all. But the resurrection for those who are not in Christ is a resurrection to judgment. So the call for all of us today, if that's not you, is to turn to trust, to trust Christ, to trust the one who died and was raised. And it's promised, I will raise everyone who trusts in me up on the last day. But if your answer is, yeah, that's me, I'm in Christ, then take courage, family. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The cost you pay and experience in this life is not in vain. Rise up, turn down, live for a higher purpose, live for higher pleasures. Let's pray. God, we praise you that you have given us great and precious promises and that by these promises, you sustain us in your grace and you form us into the image of your son. We praise you that you have raised many with Christ already and that they will be raised in the body on the last day and experience the joy of eternity with you. Lord, we pray that you would move our hearts from believing this as a concept to knowing it as a reality, believing it in a way that it transforms every avenue of our lives. Give us joy that destroys sin. Give us joy that destroys 
our pursuit of significance and life and eternity and other things. Help us to live in light of Jesus, his resurrection and ours. We love you. We praise you. We give you all the glory. Amen.